Hey guys, welcome to my podcast. My name is William Walker, and this show is all about trailblazers and how these leaders and visionaries broke new ground, challenged conventional thinking, and inspired others to follow in their footsteps. After all, Jesus was a trailblazer. So how do we, as men, live a life as trailblazers and become the leaders we are called to be? Welcome to another episode of the Trailblazer Podcast, where we celebrate men who are making a difference in the world. I'm your host, William Walker, and today we have my friend, Drew Lufkin. Drew is the president of the Auburn Student Veterans Association, a nonprofit that represents veterans transitioning from prior military service into higher education. Their goal is to help student veterans connect with one another on campus for camaraderie, to share information about local community veteran resources, and to create a culture within the local community that supports veterans' academic success and leads to future employment. Drew is married with his wife, who is also a veteran, and has four kids. Welcome to the show, Drew. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate you, brother. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Um, as always, you know, we were just talking about uh, this. This show is really about talking to and interviewing men who decided to just live their life in a different way um, and make a difference. You're a trailblazer, and uh, knowing you, um, you know, getting to know you over this last you know year, two years, I guess, of almost really just really a year. Mm -hmm. um, I continue to see that in everything that you do, especially with your Auburn student veterans. And then I can even remember a few weeks back or a couple months back where you were just sharing with me how excited you were about your, your, your kids getting baptized on one Sunday. And so the more I started, yeah, I, I can imagine, man, that was an awesome day for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I got, uh, I, I, we're very, we're very, very blessed. Um, I've actually, it's, the way it worked out is that being able to watch all four of my kids get baptized and just be excited to follow God, that, that part, like really, you can't, you know, there are a handful of moments in life that you can't put into words and those are one, those moments are one of them. That's the best way I can explain it. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's just awesome. <laughs> that's so good man I, I i can feel your emotion and your passion for 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 the decision that they made and being able to be there for that day so that's that's exciting for you man i'm hoping that we can dig into that a little bit more we'll do. We'll do. um but honestly man what i like to do on this podcast is is really just to start at the beginning to give our listeners and the listeners a chance to to kind of get to know you um, you know, where you came from, what it was like growing up, you know, whatever, whatever, the, however the story kind of leads us, you know, maybe we'll get some good fun stories about when you were, you know, stupid teenager or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> God knows I have mine, but then also, Hey, what are lessons learned? What was it like to, you know, to see your, your faith grow and, and decisions? So well, anyway, we're just going to get through all of that. So if, if you're good with that, man, um, Hey, let's rock and roll, brother. Right on, bro. Um, well, let's just start at the beginning. So, home, where'd you grow up? So, I grew up in uh, a little town called East Millinocket, Maine. Uh, if you're familiar with the Appalachian Trail, the north end of the U.S. portion of the Appalachian Trail is called Mount Katahdin. I grew up about 20 miles from there. Nice. Uh, it's a small paper mill town. Actually, when you, when you drive into my hometown, one side of the road is the mill, and then the other side of the road is the town. Um... It uh, actually originally incorporated in 1907. They had the river and they had a way to get logs to the mill. This was when they were putting logs in the rivers and they had river drivers and everything like that. This is way before pulp trucks. 
and uh, everybody flocked to this area. There's a massive immigrant population in that area too. And it was kind of one of those traditions that three generations, my dad did it, my grandfather did it. After you graduated from high school, you went down over the hill is what they called it and you started working the paper mill. My dad worked in the paper mill for 47 years. And, uh, and by the time that, by the time I got old enough, I saw that there were some issues with the mill and its productivity and it had changed ownership quite a few times. And I said, okay, this is, this is, uh, this is not going to be a lifestyle that I'm going to be able to live. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I was going to, I was going to go to college and I was going to go to the university of Maine. I was going to get a degree in computer engineering. And my mom was like, Hey, like we can't afford to send you to school. Okay. Well, you, you know, you should join the national guard. Well, I don't join the army reserve instead. And I joined, uh, I graduated from high school in June of 2001 and I joined the reserve, uh, the end of July. So about six weeks before September 11th. Oh, wow, man. I was actually, I was in my second week of classes at the University of Maine when September 11th happened. So were you a good high school student and stuff like that? To I, I was a good high school student. My issue is that I I could get good grades and not put in very little effort. Yeah. And then when I got to college, I thought that that would just translate over. And there were a lot of things, like I was the most popular kid when I was in high school. Because I was just kind of, I was just kind of marched to the beat of my own drummer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when I got to college, you know, there's all these new and cool things that I could do. And like, you know, I started, I started dating this girl like the first day of class and basically I got away from, I got away from what was working and I ended up, uh, I actually ended up getting kicked out of school. They, you know, apparently like if you like don't take tests and don't do homework and stuff, they don't like that. Really? Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. yeah. And I got a nasty gram in the mail. It's like, hey, like, thanks for coming. But yeah, just don't come back. <laughs> you're not doing what you need to do. That's funny, man. That's classic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's something. School was not my thing. Um, I was not the, 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 yeah. Still not my thing. People ask all the time, hey, you want to get your, yeah, I work at the university as well. And, and just, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're always asking, you know, work on something. I'm like, no. Like, I don't want to have to write papers. I don't want to take tests. I like to learn. I like to read. I don't like class. So. I I agree. Um, you know, because now I'm, uh, you know, now I'm a graduate student at Auburn. But if I'm being 100% honest, the only reason I went back to grad school was so I could be an officer in the Student Veterans Association. Because I think that the organization is in a very... It's in a very unique area to where, you know, because a lot of, let's kind of jump ahead, a lot of, a lot of veteran service organizations have the problem of getting younger veterans. Mm-hmm. You know, it's veteran service organizations, the, the culture has really changed because I remember when I was growing up, my grandfather, he was a member of the American Legion, VFW, mm-hmm. all of them. Yeah. And... I found out later that was just because he could cook like anything. And so anytime they anytime they had they were feeding anything, he cooked it. I remember I remember him making bean hole beans and he had fifty bean pots in the ground. He made it. He was up the day before 
and he made a, had a massive bonfire once the coals burned down. He put it, he put them all on the ground, and then put the sawdust <coughs> on. He had fifty bean pots on the ground at the same time. Right. Right. Awesome. Bean hole beans. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Bean this is. I've been. A, I'm, I'm a classically trained chef. I've been cooking my whole life. I have never heard. So please elaborate on bean hole beans. Okay. Okay. So this is a very New England thing. Yeah. Uh, so what you do is you have a bean pot. You can't use like a basic ceramic pot. Uh, usually they make steel pots, so um, you can they conduct heat very well. And what you do is you literally you can. Basic, real basic terms, you can literally dig a hole in the ground, make sure that you dig it deep enough so you can cover your pot, your bean pot up. And you put the beans in the pot. I mean, you're making beans, you do the same thing. You gotta, you know, you gotta soak them the night before, all that. Mm. You uh, put the put the wood in there, start a fire. Once the coals burn down, so they're actually good cooking coals, like not just massive flames, good cooking coals. You put the beans in them, and then you literally just put a handful of coals on top, put the uh, sod or some dirt back over it, cover them up, give it about eight hours, and they'll be done. All right, you're going to have to cook these for me. Or maybe we'll have like a, 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 a like an event or something like that where you serve hey. bean hole beans. Did I get that right? Bean hole beans, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Let me tell you what, I got I got a two pound bag of main yellow eye in my yellow pantry eye. ready to go. We'll do we'll do this. You pick the day, brother, we will do this. You do that, I'll hey and do I need to serve me? Do we serve anything with it or so uh, as my grandfather he did this every Saturday. He didn't always do bean hole, he he would do it in the oven in the wintertime. But uh, usually put a pound or two of salt pork in it. Uh-huh. And then you put two or three onions in it. I mean, it's a real easy recipe you Two pounds of beans, molasses, uh, some dry mustard. Uh, some people put sugar in it. If you want it sweet, if you want to do a really good sweet, you can put a little bit of molasses and you mix it with maple syrup if you like sweet beans. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily my thing. I mean, you can go down rabbit holes as far as you want on this, but uh, it's usually that's it. And you have like uh, brown bread. And it's yeah, like, I, yeah, I got a look on my face like. And everything. Yeah, it's, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of people down here are like, what? Brown bread? Like, yeah. All oh, bread's yeah. brown. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. This is, this is some next level stuff. It's really good. Man, I'm all in, brother. Like, I am. I, I love food. And one of the reasons I became a chef is because I love what happens around the table. Yes. And people are sitting and breaking bread. Like, there's something powerful and magical um, when I read the Bible I love just reading the stories about when Jesus was just sitting around the table with his disciples or the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Like, <laughs> but life changes happen there, you know. Jesus dropped a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge on a lot of people. I always, when I got, <clears throat> when I think of him, so I was saved when I was 12. And it was actually like in a, in a pop-up camper of all things. In the driveway of my friend's house, mm -hmm. and he was talking to me about God, and I kind of heard it before. I was kind of like, "Yeah, okay, whatever." And then something just kind of hit home with me, and I and to this day, like I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was like, "Okay, there's something to this here. Like, there's something, there's something that I was missing." Mm -hmm. And so, uh, 
I accepted Jesus in my heart, and it it was a game changer for me because I don't know. It it really just changed my changed my view of the world. I mean, when you're 12 years old, there's a whole lot of developmentally going on, you know, and a whole lot that you need to work on, mm-hmm. and it really just it really just kind of opened my eyes that, you know, maybe I wasn't necessarily thinking the right way. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can explain it. That's good. 12 is a, 12 is like that first step. Yeah. From boyhood where you're still hanging on mommy's, you know, apron. Yeah. For lack of a better term. I mean, and I'm not saying women are in, in please, although if anyone listens no. to this, this is not about women being in the kitchen, but it's, 12 is when the transition starts happening in boys yeah. of going, hey, I can be dangerous. I can be adventurous. <laughs> yep. But like something really, yeah. really happens at that point. Um, and I love it. Like it's it's cool. And and I think that, when that we don't want to go down this rabbit hole with me, but I think that we have a world of a lot of 12-year-old boys that never had any type of passage start happening at that point. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, not, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, I think that, uh, you know, because I, I have a seven and an eight-year-old now. Mm-hmm. Well, seven, eight-year-old, 11-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And All four boys? Nope. Youngest one's daughter. So three boys. Three <laughs> boys and daughter. And I'm telling you, she's the one I worry about. Yeah. I don't worry about I don't worry about the three oldest ones, but I think that as a parent, you kind of sometimes there's you know there's a lot of different moving pieces you know especially for guys like us that mm-hmm. you know we're always rolling stones there's not a whole lot of moss that we're gathering mm-hmm. and there's a whole lot of moving pieces and sometimes we I know I can't I can't speak for anybody else I can speak for myself sometimes I get too caught up in everything else that's going on. And say, okay, like, you know, take this time because, you know, you, my kids are asking me these questions for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, and they're trying to do these things for a reason. It's like uh, this week, uh, my uh, 13-year-old is in seventh grade, and so he tried out for, he tried out for seventh grade basketball. Nice. Is he and, tall like you? What's that? Is he tall like you? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's tall. He's tall. He's one of the taller kids in his grade. Nice. But, uh. So they had three days of tryouts, and he made the he made the cut after the third day of tryouts. But then there was a two week break, and then they had another day of tryouts with all the football players after football was done. And so then he didn't make the team, and he's you know obviously pretty upset. Um, and so I sat him down, and I was like, "Listen, man, like I understand you're upset, and you should be upset." But this is this is one of these moments, and I told a story about you know how Michael Jordan didn't make you know didn't make the basketball team when he was a freshman. Yeah. You know, because like coach was like, yeah, you're just not good enough. Well, okay, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. You know, what you do with that defines who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have it be a weight and a burden on you that hangs on you. Yeah. And affects everything you do, or. You can use that to feed the fire mm-hmm. that burns inside of you to push you to work harder. So I had that conversation with him, and then 
the, it was, I mean, I'm going to say this, like, I screw up being a dad a lot. I get that. You know, but that was, that was one of those moments where you, you get him and see him the next day and he's out there shooting free throws and he's out there, you know, being methodical, being meticulous about form and shooting shots. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. You know, you talk about that transition mm-hmm. where, you know, there's a lot of things going on biologically. There's a lot of things going on mentally. And when you're that age, you're trying to sort a lot of stuff out. And bring it back to me, it was, okay, the light really came on that there's a lot more to life than my narrow, my narrow view at that time. Yeah. So, and also, as, as you can tell about me, I'll... I will, no, you're good, I, man. I will take I will take very long-winded ways to come back and make the make the make the uh, wag the tail. So hey, man, look, it took it took till I was almost forty. Like I was like you. Like I, I grew up in a church. Well, I, I grew up in a church and honestly, probably professed my faith at a young age, like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took till I was almost thirty-eight to where I finally was like, oh, hey. I really need to make a change and, and live my life this way. And it's been a journey for the last 12 years, 11, 12 years for me now. Hey, I think that, you know, I think that, I think that that's very good because I think that, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes you kind of get, you know, you kind of rest on your laurels a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I'm a firm believer that, just when you think you got it all figured out is when you're really screwing something up mm-hmm. and you need to go back and take a look at everything. Like for, you know, for <coughs> full sake of clarity, I actually, I got to the point where the beginning of this past month I had to quit drinking, mm-hmm. like be done, done with it because it was really, it was starting to affect like my health and, it was affecting my sleep patterns, which was affecting how I was treating other people. And it was very, very, it was very unhealthy. And I gotta say, like the last month, physically I have felt so good. And it has caused me to mentally feel so good. It, it's funny. I mean, I'm glad that you said that because I literally had that conversation with my wife two weeks ago. Yeah. And, and I don't drink a lot. Like, I mean, I'll, Maybe go. I would go across the street to my friend's house where they had a bonfire, and I'd have a couple of beers. But I just always found myself, even after you know two, three beers, I'm just like yeah. the next day. I'm just like my brain's not as clear as it, it should be. My workouts, I have to push through, yeah. you know. And I'm like, I don't. I just don't need that. Like yeah. it, it, it does nothing for me. And I can have a sweet tea or a cup of coffee or a water or whatever, and not have any issue the next yeah. day at all. You know, it's. My, the way my personality is, so, you know, like you taking the Myers, the Myers-Briggs personality assessment mm-hmm. before. Yeah. I've taken it five times. Every time it comes up the same thing. I got, I have the commander personality. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, it's like less than 5% of the population. And, and my personality type is that when I get on something, like it is, it is going to get done or I am going to run myself into the ground mm-hmm. trying to make it happen. Yeah. And it's not anything I try and do. It just always happens that way. And so for me, it got to the point where 
it got to the point where I was drinking like I could put away like three quarters of a handle of vodka at night. Mm. It was that's a lot, man. It was way too much. Yeah. And I was just like, I mean, what am I doing now? Yeah. You know. And I wasn't being a good enough father. I wasn't being a good enough husband. Mm-hmm. And I was like. You know, I had a conversation with Melanie, and I was like, this this isn't working, this isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we both deserve better than this. Yeah. And so, uh, she actually, she actually did too. So, October 1st was the last time I, the last time I had a drink, and I'm actually pretty proud of that. You should be, man. Yeah, because, you know, going to an Auburn tailgate and not drinking is actually pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, man. I mean... You know, um, God, man, we're, we're, I love this way that we're going with this, but it's one of the things that when I go to the tailgate or when I, you know, when I get a chance to hang out with some of the guys, um, like I see it, I'm just like, you're like, there's more. Yeah. And you just want to go, bro, there's more. Yeah, like you have so much more, and and I see it. Like I know you were looking up that earlier, and my break my heart for what breaks yours. I mean, it's literally it's it's the it, it's why I get up and do what I do every day. It's why I live my life, and and it's it's for the men of this world. It's it, without a doubt, it's to fight for their hearts. And I mean, I wrote it down last night, and God just burdens me with it every day. Well, I <clears throat> I think that there. The, so speaking as the leader of my organization, one of the things that you see, one of the things that you develop from the military is the fact that like going out and drinking and being crazy is almost kind of part of the military culture in a way. Oh, it's hundred percent part of the culture. And that kind of translated over to our organization in a way where you know, go out, have fun and drink. And I'm like, I did that for a while. And it's like you said, there's a lot of things out there that are so much better, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, one of the things that, uh, that, uh, one of my, one of my buddies told me is that, you know, it's, it's it, it's it's fake fun, you know. It's a fake high per se. Poser. Yeah, and you know you wake up, you know you wake up the next day, or like you know you're in the bathroom, you know yakking your brains out, mm-hmm. and it's just so. Part of the reason why I said that is is because. I think that everybody struggles with things. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it doesn't matter how famous you are or like everything that you've done, how many people are looking up to you. Everybody's struggling with something. You know, I'm struggling with stuff right now. You are. Yeah. You know, whether we're going to talk about it or not is up to us, but I want to make sure that I talk about this point because it's okay to say that, you know, like everything is not okay. Yeah. You know, it's okay to say, hey, you know what, man, like, I'm having problems with this right now, you know, 
Because, I mean, if you think about it, right? You know, Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to take one for the team. Mm-hmm. You know? And he died so we could have this life. Yeah. Not only this life now, but eternal life when it really matters. Yeah. And it's okay to say, hey, you know what, man? Like, I'm having a hard time with this. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, the biggest issue veteran, the veterans face is suicide among veteran ranks. Yeah. And it's that military culture that says, hey, you know what? I can push through it. I can suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said that too. Like, I was an Army Ranger, man. Yeah. Like, they sing cadences and stuff about us when they run around. Oh, I know. And you're thinking that and you're like, Okay, well, you know what? I'm the guy that can do anything. I'm the guy that can push through anything. Mm-hmm. And that's not always the case because it's usually those guys that end up, you know, end up hurting themselves. And you're like, I had no idea that, that guy was struggling with something. Mm-hmm. So it's real, man. Um, you know, it's funny. You kind of you brought up struggling, and this is for whatever reason something that's just been on my heart lately. And I, and I say this very, not because I'm looking for someone to go, oh, you did your blah, 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 blah. Um, like I struggle a lot of times thinking that I pose about who I am as this rah-rah guy because I don't feel like I did what I should have done. Like I got out in 2000. Mm-hmm. I never fired a bullet other than at a target in boot camp and when I had to qualify with my rifle every year. Yeah. You know, and other than that, I was a pogue. So just for those who don't know, that's person other than grunt. <laughs> like, like I didn't have to go out and hump and do all that stuff, right? Well, well, I'm glad you clarified that because it's gotten to the point now where I speak military jargon and I don't even think about it. Yeah, so, but, but without a doubt, man, I mean, there are days I have to to process, and I wouldn't say it's a, I mean, maybe it's not a, a huge struggle, but it's something inside of me that bothers me because one of my biggest core values is authenticity. Yeah. And so when I'm outside of that reign, outside of that sphere or influence or those, those guardrails about being authentic about who I am and who I was created to be, it's a struggle. My work's harder. When I when I try to fake it to make it, like my work is hard. Whatever it is I'm doing. And I can feel it immediately. And that's the one that I I just can't seem to shake. Well I don't, I don't know why. I think uh, I don't think you're being inauthentic because I never got that vibe from you. And I'm gonna tell you what, having having been in combat multiple, multiple times, I'm gonna tell you unequivocally you're not missing anything. Um there's you know I've lost a few friends and I've had to do and see things in combat that you know stay with you forever. Yeah. And I'm gonna say that you're actually lucky that you haven't seen it. Um, I think that, because uh, I'll be honest, I don't like fighting. I don't like any of that. I'm one of those guys, and I'm just like, hey, if you want to bring the war to me, okay, let's go. 
but I don't. This the, the way I the way I view the military, the way I view it is that it's just a machine, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a vehicle. It's a big you old know? machine. It's a big old machine, you know. And one part not doing its job makes that machine not run. You know, because I've had this conversation. I've had this very conversation with my wife because my wife she did uh, she did personnel in the Air Force. She's like, well, you know, I didn't do what you did, and I was like. Yeah, you did. Because here's the thing is that, you know, like, if she doesn't, if she doesn't make sure my paperwork's correct, then I don't get paid. Yeah. If I don't get paid, that stops the whole show. You know? You know, if promotional version don't get sent up the right way, if, you know, people don't get checked in or checked out or wherever they're at, you know, and it doesn't matter, like, whoever's, you know, whoever driving, whoever driving the vehicle, you know, whoever's working in the supply room, making sure that you're getting fed. Because if you don't get fed, nothing works. Yeah. So, I think that the guys that kick in the doors get a lot of the credit. You know, and the military is kind of designed to be all about them, but it's not. It takes a machine. It takes everybody doing their job. Yeah. To make sure the machine works. So I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have anything to feel guilty about, brother. Not at all. Because you're a great American, man. You signed up to fight for your country. You know? You can't control the geopolitics of the world that are going on at the time. It's a good thing, probably. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But. Well, thanks, man. That's that's the burden you need to let go, brother. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um. Man, that's cool. I did not mean for this to go that way, but I'm glad it did. So I, I really does. It, it means a lot because I got to be honest, man. You are someone um, that I also look up to. You know, I see how you lead. I see how you, the influence that you you carry in the role and the position that you play, um, and and just how you live your life. Which is honestly, which is exactly why you're here in, in this in this room right now with me is because I see that and. And I see what God does in your life and in your family. I mean, I don't even know your family, but just hearing your stories is, is more than enough to wow. give me to give me that. But. Well, I mean, if I'm being honest with you, you know, when I was growing up, so that's good. We can get back to that. Yeah, back on yeah, stories. Great segue. Well, I mean, here's the thing: is that there's there's a whole lot of moving pieces here. So, my mom, um, like. My dad and my mom met at a college party and then I was born nine months later. There you go. Okay. And he's my biological dad. And um, after I was born, you know, he wasn't around. And when I was six months old, my mom went up to him, brought me up there for the weekend. And on Sunday, I was like, hey, like, check this out, dude. You're going to be this kid's dad all the time, all day, every day. Or you're not going to be his dad at all. And you're going to decide right now. Wow. When I was six months old, he decided to walk away. And so my mom, who's 24 years old now with a six-month-old with no dad, like, let me tell you what, my mom, I have a handful of role models, and my mom's at the top of the list Mm -hmm. because she is hard as woodpecker lives. And I'm going to tell you this. So she (coughs) she had gone to school and had dropped out 
and she was a DJ at a radio station. And then I come along and from where she lived back to come back to my grandparents' house, it was like a two hour drive. You know, because this is Northern Maine and you get a, it's like an hour to drive anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, to give you, to give you any indication, when I was growing up, I had to drive an hour just to go watch a movie in a movie theater. Wow. Yeah. Man. I mean, like, I, I got to get up to Maine. That's going to be beautiful up there, dude. I'm telling you, dude, anybody listen to this, if you go to Maine, go to Baxter State Park. Baxter State Park. Baxter State Park is where Mount Katahdin is, some of the most beautiful terrain in the world, and there's, like, almost nobody else up there. Oh, that's the it's best amazing. part. I mean. But, you know, to get back to my mom, I've only heard her tell this story once. And she said that after she got in the car with me, she cried for like 30 minutes on the way home because she didn't know what she was going to do. You know, she ended up having to move back in with my grandparents. And then she, you know, she wouldn't say this, but I think what happened is I think God put a little bit of fire inside of her. Mm -hmm. And she decided that she was going to go back to school and not only go back to school, but she was going to go to law school and go be an attorney. Nice. And she came in, and when she got home, she came in, told my grandparents the plan. And they're like, okay, what help do you need? And, you know, it took her a little while because she, go she didn't go to law school until I was a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of my junior year of high school, she graduated from law school from, uh, from Maine Law in Portland. And it was... I didn't really understand it at the time. I didn't understand it until I had to go through it myself. But to to see like you know all the hardship that she had gone through. Yeah. You know, because imagine imagine being in her mind in that moment, right? Imagine being in your mind like you have a six month old, mm-hmm. and you're and you know the father of this baby just said, "Yeah, you know what? I'm done." Like literally signed over his parental rights. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you're on your own and you have all these hopes and dreams and it's like how are you going to do this Yeah. and she had the intestinal fortitude and the mental where, wherewithal yeah. to gather herself and hey say you know what I'm going to do this Yeah. like that's a very rare person I think that I inherited a lot of those qualities from her and so you know fast forward to 2003 you know I told you that I got kicked out of school. I'll be honest with you, man. Like when I was 20, when I was 19 and 20, I was just stealing oxygen from everybody else. Mm-hmm. I was not doing anything. The way I've the way I've interpreted this is that I think that and I'm I'm gonna say this like I'm not the authority on this. This is just what I gather. I may be wrong and said I think that sometimes God puts you in front of doors, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's like, hey, like you can go through this door or you cannot. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And I think there are other times where he's like, hey, you should really, really, really go through this door. I'm not going to force you, but you really should. Yeah. And then there are other times where he throws open the door, kicks you in there, and then closes it behind you and says, okay, now now, now you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to do this. And in uh, the summer of 2003, I started losing weight, which I have to keep working out because I have... I had the fat boy gene. Like I will get, I will get big if I don't work out. 
It's the only reason I work out, man. But I'm also 50, so the fat boy gene is extra strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I mean, I, I turned 40 this year, so I, I can tell that there's changes oh, going dude. on in the body. The next 10 years are just like, yeah, it all happens. Yeah. That's why, like, this morning, you know, my alarm went off at 6, and I was like, mm -hmm. this bed feels really good. <coughs> and then the next thought in my head is like, you know what else feels really good? <laughs> Getting out of the pool when you're done working out. Let's go. Yep. It doesn't always happen that way. I'm not going to lie. I have mornings where that doesn't happen. But this morning, it's like, okay, man, it's time to go work. Yeah. But, uh, so, like, in the summer of 2003, you know, I was starting to lose weight, which is something I don't normally do. And I kind of chalked it up to, I was actually working in Baxter State Park. I was a park ranger at the time. Mm -hmm. And so, I was hiking. I was all over the place. 2003? 2003. Okay. So, you, so we have a huge gap there. I just want to make sure I clarify. You graduated from high school 2001, right? Yeah. And you went to Maine. Yep. And basically, God said, hey, we like having you here because you're a really awesome guy. But you kind of suck as a student. Yeah. So, we're going to ask you to take a break. Yep. And so, then you got you a job as the park ranger. Yeah. All so, right. Cool. Yeah. And it was... So, I had joined... Okay, so I joined the Army Reserve in July of 2001, but I didn't go to basic training until February 2002. So, like, when Takagar happened, I was in basic training in Takagar. I don't know what the what was So, that? that is, uh, so that was when, uh, first, so that was when that 47 got, sh got shot down on the mountain in Afghanistan. Yeah, okay. They had, uh, they had the CCT and the PJ, and then mm -hmm. a handful of SEALs, Roberts Ridge. Yeah. You know, that's what that was. And, uh, and so then I finished basic training in AIT in July, and I'm sorry, in June um, 2002, and then came back and actually did another semester at Maine, and then did worse. Like when you add my GPA together from these two semesters, I'm talk I'm not talking average. I'm talking when you add it together, it's a 1.7. Nice. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean it's. It's like terrible. I'm just, and, I'm here joking. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It was, I mean, hey, go me right here. There you go. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And then, you know, I was still in the reserve. And the army really started to appeal to me at that point. And plus, like, it's, you know, September 11th happened. And... I was trying, I tried to go on active duty before, but my reserve unit wouldn't let me go. So for those of you who don't know, like if you're in the army reserve or like the national guard, if you want to go on active duty, you serve on an active duty unit, your unit has to give you permission to leave. Mm -hmm. And because I just graduated from basic training, they had invested this money in me, in me for training. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to let you leave. Yeah. And so, um, i worked at Baxter state park. I got a job. Um, there in uh, February of 2003 and then uh, then like Iraq happened the invasion of Iraq happened and I was like okay I'm trying to go active duty again so fast forward to November 2003 and I've been feeling kind of weird because I was that guy like I don't know what it is like I'm I'm never gonna be a power lifter there are most everybody can usually bench or squat more than me but I can just like run and go forever. Mm -hmm. You know, like not now, not anymore, but at that time, at that time I could run like 545 miles forever. Oh God. I was, 
This, was, this is why I don't go run with him. <laughs> I'm old and slow. Well, I can't do that anymore. The pace has slowed down a little bit. Probably still faster than mine, but <laughs> I'm a happy 10-minute mile guy. Well, you know I'm what? sure I could push it if I wanted to, but after the first mile, then I'm done. Well, I'll, I'll tell you another story here in a minute. But anyway, uh, yeah. But and so come like this time, you know, in October, I was getting tired all the time. Like I walk from here to your front door, mm-hmm. which is for everybody that can't see it, your front door is literally like. 15 feet away from here mm-hmm. and I'll have to stop and take a break. Like I was shaving and I would, <coughs> and I would cut myself and it would just bleed and bleed and bleed. <coughs> and so I went to the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, you know, it seems like you got something going on with your gallbladder. So he gives me, gives me a, a Z pack. He's like, Hey, just take these. And I was like, okay. And then, uh, come he's, he goes, yeah, we're going to schedule some tests for a couple weeks. And so they did an ultrasound. You know, by the way, for those of you that, if you ever go to the hospital, okay, and they're doing any tests, and like they stop the test and leave the room, that's not a good sign. Yeah. Okay. So they're doing an ultrasound, and they're on the, um, on my, my right side of my abdomen, mm-hmm. and she stops, takes a couple freeze frame pictures, and comes back, and then goes to the other side, and, you know, takes, stops, and takes pictures, and leaves, so it's the second time she left. Came back and then the doc comes back in with her and the doc's like, hey, you're living your spleen are normally swollen. We don't know why we're going to run some blood tests. And it's like, okay. So they took like a bajillion vials of blood, you know? It's like when you go and they're just like, I mean, it's like, it's like Roy G. Bibb, you know, you got the tops of the tubes and you're seeing all the colors. And I'm just like, okay, like, I mean, I got, I got some left in here, right? <laughs> <laughs> Feeling a little faint over here. You're taking so much. So, Got a cookie? Yeah. And I'm in the I'm in the waiting room. And he comes. The doc comes out like 30 minutes later. He's like, "Yeah, we're pretty sure you got mononucleosis." Jeez. Pete. Which I didn't know. I knew that basically it was like, okay, I'm gonna be real tired for a month, and then I'll be okay. Uh-huh. That's what I thought at the time. He goes. We haven't got like all the tests back yet, so if you want to hang out for like another 20 minutes, you know, we'll just make sure. And I was like, okay. So then. Uh, he comes back like 20 minutes later. He's like, hey, I need you to come with me. I was like, okay. So then he brings me in the x-ray waiting room and I go and sit down and he's like sitting in the doorway, or I'm sorry, standing in the doorway. He's leaning up against the side and he goes, I think we're dealing with something a little bit more serious than mononucleosis. And there's a pause and I'm like, okay, what is that? He goes, I think we're dealing with some sort of leukemia. And I was, I remember I kind of sat back and I had, I had five images that came through my head mm-hmm. and I'm not going to share all of them, but the last one I had was like that wooden coffin that you would see in like Western movies. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there, there are too many people have had to have this, that have had this moment in their lives because there are a lot of people out there that have had cancer. The best way I can explain is if you haven't had it, is that if you take all your goals and your hopes and your dreams, for me at that time, I was 20 years old, you know, like finding a wife, buying a house, having kids, yeah, all that, all that just stops. Like dead stop. You know, if you imagine like you're in a rail car and you just pull the brakes on the rail car, you know, yeah. that's basically what happened. And, uh, 
I had driven myself to the hospital. So after he tells me this, he says, Hey, you know, because this was, this was Millinocket Regional Hospital. It's a small hospital. He goes, we're going to have to take you to Eastern Maine Medical Center and they're going to admit you where you're going to stay there for a while while you start chemo or whatever. And they didn't even know what kind of leukemia it was because there's a bunch of different kinds of leukemia. And so for those of you who don't know, leukemia is cancer of your blood. It's specifically cancer of your white blood cells. And so the way it was explained to me is that, you know, um, your blood cells, your white and red blood cells, your red blood cells are the ones that carry oxygen and nutrients and everything. And your white blood cells are the ones that, you know, you have different white blood cells that fight off viruses, different ones that fight off bacteria, things like that. I don't know all the specifics of it. I'm not a medical professional. This is just, this is just what I was told. And so, um, what happens when you have leukemia is that all your, all your blood cells are made in your bone marrow. And so, Inside your bone marrow, you'll have, you'll have these blood cells that are created and made. And for whatever reason, they're not made right. And so they can't do their job. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you'll have white blood cells that, you know, there's something wrong with them. And they can't, like, kill viruses. This happens, like, in your body every day. And your body just naturally gets rid of them. Well, when you have leukemia or something like this, your body doesn't get rid of it. And then what it does is it starts mass reproducing itself. So it's like a bad copy making bad copies. You know, mm -hmm. like when you go to the copy machine and you put something that looks terrible in there and then you put it out, pull it out of the copy machine, it looks even worse. Mm -hmm. Those bad cells start hogging all the resources for all the other good cells. And then by that point, you have white blood cells that are taking resources, can't do the job. They're taking resources away from red blood cells. Then you have red blood cells that can't don't have hemoglobin, can't carry oxygen, you know? That's why my resting pulse when I went in there was 117. Jeez. That's crazy, you know? man. Because my heart was trying to work its tail off saying, hey, like, I have to pump a lot more blood in order just to maintain. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was so tired. And so, uh, I, and so I promise that there's a, re there's a reason why I'm telling the story is that so I drove, it was seven miles to the hospital from my parents' house. So I was still living with my parents. I was, I was 20 years old, still living with my parents. That gives you an indication of how my life was going at that point. And I was scared. I cried like my seven-year-old daughter when I don't give her a candy bar. Yeah. It, I was scared. And I got home and my parents weren't home. And I just needed, I need to talk to someone. I need to hear somebody's voice. I, I just... I needed to hear something. I didn't even know what I needed to hear. I just needed to hear some other voice. Yeah. So I called my best friend. And to give you a background on this, my best friend's grandfather had died of cancer. His cousin had almost died of cancer. He had to have one of his lungs removed. And so, you know, it's... And I told him over the phone, I was like, hey, dude, they just told me I had leukemia. And my friend, he said, this one sentence, if I could pick a moment that really changed my life, changed the direction of my life, this is it. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, Drew, when something happens, you just plenty of room my arm for a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus, man. Still a good friend, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Best oh, yeah. friend in the whole world, probably. I mean, and that's when, you know, that's when 
you get hit in the face with the proverbial two by four. It's like, yeah. this is not good. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think in this moment, God really, God lit a fire inside of me. Yeah. Cause I got really angry and it was just like, no, like there are things that I'm going to do with my life. And I knew in that moment it was, it was so weird. It wasn't weird. It was calming. It was in a way, it was the most relaxed I'd ever been in my whole life Mm -hmm. because God said, Hey man, I got this. Mm. Believe in me, mm-hmm. you know, because I feel like, uh, <clears throat> you know, and I do it too, like, you know, when everything's good, you're like, you're like, oh yeah, man, this is awesome, you know, and then when you're, when you're struggling with something, when you're going through a hard time, like, God help me, God help me, and it was this moment where he was like, you know, because you know how, like, you're always asking for answers, and the answers come on God's time, you know? Yeah. Like, it's never like, oh, this is the moment I need you, and he's here. Mm-hmm. This was the moment I needed him, and he was, like, right there. Yeah. It was like he put a warm blanket over me and said, hey, mm-hmm. man, like, you're going to make it through this, you're going to yeah. be okay. And it was the most relaxing feeling I've had in almost my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so... uh so my parents came home and the doctor had called and told them and and then uh, they drove me to they drove me to, to Bangor to go to the bigger hospital. And it's weird because I just decided to have fun with it. I was like, you know what? I can't control this is the hard part about it. I think that uh, you know, as human beings, we're always trying to like control something, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to control aspects of our lives. We're trying to control certain things, you know. Some people are even like trying to control other people in their lives. Mm-hmm. And being able to let go and release something is so hard, you know, because there are things that I just can't let go of right now. But in that moment, I figured out, hey, you know what? I'm gonna live or I'm gonna die. It's up to God. Yeah. You know. And the only thing I can control is my mental attitude and how I mentally attack things. And so I decided to attack. So I said, you know what? I'm going to keep working out. And I got them. They looked at me weird. I got them to put an exercise bike in my room. You know? And they're like, hey, like, you're going to have to go on chemo, man. And so uh, I found out the day after I had to do some more tests and they drew even more blood. Mm-hmm. Well, your body had a chance to reproduce up. So you no, I mean, I'm serious. Like, they were coming in. So... That was a Friday. That was November 7th. So literally next week, I'm coming up on 20 years. And I've been thinking about that lately. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about all the all the things that have happened in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that was a Friday when I found out. And so over the weekend, I drew blood. And I met my oncologist. And the funny thing is that because I was under 21, I had a pediatric oncologist. And so, uh, so you're telling me. So they're just drawing blood, they're running these tests, and I found out I had acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and I knew that I was going to be on chemo for two and a half years. And if everything if everything went to plan, I wasn't going to need radiation, and I wasn't going to need to get bone marrow transplant, mm-hmm. which bone marrow transplants are insane. Yeah. 
I don't know if you know that process, but they literally like put enough radiation in you to kill all your bone marrow mm-hmm. that goes inside your bones. Like it can change your blood type. Yeah. It's like, it, that's, oof. I, I mean, can't even imagine. you want to talk about getting hit with the proverbial sledgehammer over and over again. Mm-hmm. I was blessed to not have to do that. But, um, there are also, there are also other moments too, but so uh, when I found out what type of leukemia it is, my oncologist said it was, she said, hey, you know, if I could have taken all the cancer cells out of your blood, I could have made a tumor both sides of the grapefruit. And I'm like, okay, well, let's go. And uh, I think that, you know, going back to that moment, I think that God really used that moment to really wake me up. Because three days later, I had this ROTC pamphlet, and I had this picture of this guy, this army guy with a rucksack on, this rucksack that was like the size of a truck, and he's repelling down this rock face. It's easily like two or three hundred feet. Mm-hmm. And like all these horse rangers doing, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That's funny. And I started chemo, so I found out on Friday, I started chemo the next Tuesday. And then the next Friday, I decided that after I finished chemo, I was going to go be an armor ranger. And I remember the same friend, the same friend that was like, yeah, I got plenty of room on for tattoos, like, Dude, you're in the hospital right now. You got other things you got to worry about. I was like, no, no, man, I got this. I got this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of being 20 and being arrogant, but at the same time, I felt like in that moment that I knew something that nobody else did. Mm-hmm. That God had that conversation with me and told me that I was going to be okay and I was yeah. going to pursue it. That didn't mean it wasn't going to hurt. That didn't mean that it wasn't painful. That didn't. That didn't mean it wasn't going to be difficult. But He just told me, hey. I got plans for you mm-hmm. and it's not to end right here right now. Yeah. yeah, man. I mean, without a doubt, I mean, that vision, that goal, that aspiration, I mean, I mean, what would have happened if you'd never seen that pamphlet? Whew. I don't know. I think whenever you go through something like that, you gotta have, you gotta have goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, later on, my oncologist actually made me like a cancer ambassador. Mm, yeah, cool. And so, uh, anytime she got new patients that were like in the 17 to 25 age group, even like the adult oncologist, she'd have me go talk to them and talk to their parents. Because that's the, that's the hardest part. Like, that's the hardest part is on your parents or on like your family members. Because mm-hmm. you want to talk about like, having zero control. I think it's easier emotionally to deal with those situations when you're going through them. It's so much more difficult when you're somebody on the outside looking at it and you're like, you just feel helpless. I saw that so many times Mm -hmm. with my parents and my friends. I mean, we're parents. Yeah. I can't imagine getting that type of news from one of my sons. Yeah. And knowing there's absolutely nothing I can do other than get on my knees and pray and weep and pray and that's it yeah. I can put them in the car and drive them to the hospital yeah. and, and, and bring them home and there's nothing I can do yeah and that's the you know that's the hardest part about it is because here's the thing is that like I could sit here and say like oh you know what I beat cancer all this stuff that's just not true you know like stuff like that kills good people every day yeah. kills better people than me every day yeah. you know I think that, uh, you know, there's been a handful of moments in life where you can, you just feel like God working in your life. Mm-hmm. Like you just, 
it's almost like you can tangibly hold oh, yeah. that feeling. And that was one of those moments. I've had a handful of those moments in my life where God's like, okay, like, you're screwing this up. I'm going to take care of you. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel like. No, dude, I couldn't agree more with everything you're saying there. I mean, I've, I actually, I read a book not that long ago. Um, I think it's up on my shelf. Yeah, Becoming a King. And he talks about, in the book, about how to reframe how you look at the struggles in your life as little initiations from your father so that you can become the man that you're called to be. Yeah. Um, a few years back, 2020 actually, um, I read a verse one morning. And it was 2 Timothy 3, 17. And it says, so that the men of God will be complete and fully equipped to do good work. Yeah. And as soon as I read it, I wrote down this question and I don't, I was like, I don't know where his question came from. I'm like, I don't know why you're asking me to come up with the answer. And he goes, so what's a fully equipped, complete man of God? And I'm like, bro, like you're supposed to give me that answer, right? I'm not supposed to answer this. But like over the years, over the last few years, what's, what's changed in me about that is complete means that I'm ready to be home. Yeah. Right. As long as I am still here on this earth, that means my mission is not done. It does not mean I will ever finish what I believe is my mission because only God knows when that is. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a billion things that I start that I will never finish. And I have to be okay with that. But I do understand that when I do go and when I do die, that I've completed everything that I was supposed to complete. Yeah. So now I'm equipped and ready to be in his presence, in his kingdom, with him. And until then, I'm just here bailing water out the boat as I keep moving forward, right? <laughs> you know, I'm just like, not ready to drown yet, we're yeah. going to move forward. You know, I always, I always like to use the, the military term, you know, uh, the army. We have uh, battle drills, and the first battle drill is reactive contact, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what happens when you're out on a mission and all of a sudden... You start, you get ambushed. Yeah. You know, because, you know, if you translate that, translate that over to life, life ambushes you a lot. You know, and there's a lot of things that happen that, you know, like the story I just said, mm -hmm. that really change the course of your life and where you're going. Yeah. You know, I almost feel like, uh, I look back, it took me a while, it took me a lot of reflection and prayer to get to this point, but it's to look back at it. You know, because you're obviously, you know, emotionally, you're a human being. You're trying to decide, like, you know, I remember thinking, so I spent the better part of six months in the hospital. And it got to the point where I'm like, I had two IV poles. I had, mm -hmm. I had four IV machines going at the same time. Damn. It got to the point where I didn't understand how human beings could function without being hooked up to machines. Like that's, that's how much it, that's how much it affected yeah. my mind. And you're in those moments and you're in moments where like the nurses are getting like radiation suits on to bring stuff in, to bring stuff into your room that they're going to just put in your body, Yep. you know, because it's so dangerous for them, but it's like, Hey, we're going to give this to you because it's going to help you. And you're trying to figure that out. Right. And you're, losing, <laughs> and you're yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you're losing, you know, and I'm losing my hair, and 
they were giving me they were giving me the stuff that I would go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I wouldn't have to turn on the light because what was coming out of me was lighting up the toilet bowl and I could Jeez, see. Beats, man. That's just crazy. Dude. And so when all this is going on, you're thinking like, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And somebody had to tell me this. I wasn't smart enough to figure it out on my own. Is that maybe God's getting you ready to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Exactly right, man. I think it was, I don't know, looking back on it, I don't think you really, you know, if, if you think about it, who are the people that you can really count on the most in your life? Mm. Right? Yeah. If you think about why you can count on those people, because mm-hmm. those people were there when you needed them. Mm-hmm. Those people were there for you when it was hard. Yeah. When it was next level hard. Yeah. When God's like, hey man, like you need to change a little bit and you're not figuring this out on your own, this mm-hmm. is the way I think. And you know, he kicks you in he kicks you in one of the doors and closes it behind you and says, Hey, like I tried, I tried. I tried. I tried to walk, you, walk you into it. Yep. I tried. I tried to be nice about it, but now you're gonna have to figure this part out. Yeah. And uh, you know, those are those are the people that you can depend on because you find out more about you and the people around you mm-hmm. when it gets really hard. That's what I think. I've only got one or two people that I knew that had cancer. One was my company guy when I was in the Marine Corps and he was yeah. a really good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, he was someone who kind of took me under my wing because I was in my first like year and a half in the my first year in the fleet, I made a bunch of stupid decisions. What? No, I, <laughs> I mean, never, I bro, never ever did any of that. I went from <laughs> I went from E three ready to pick up E four to E one in a matter of like nine months, mm-hmm. and I was very fortunate that I had a company first sergeant and a company Ghani who just kind of William you need to figure this out. And honestly, and, and I was able to turn it all back around and, and, and get all my rank back. And I was actually as I, right as I got out, I almost reenlisted and I, I, I decided to get out instead. Um, I was eligible to pick up corporal. So I would have picked up corporal, which I made yeah. all the way back up to E4, which would have been, you know, a pretty big deal, well, a non-commissioned officer. So, well, I mean, I think that, I think that those moments make you a better leader. Hmm. You know, because oh, yeah. I think that the best people, I think that the best people have, over, have overcome some sort of hardship, right? Whether it's <laughs> self-imposed or not. Yeah, true. Because trust me, I have self-imposed more than my share of hardship on myself. Oh, okay. Don't get me wrong. You know, uh, the best example I, I can give is, you know, Admiral Chester Nimitz. Everybody knows him because he was the commander of Pacific Fleet Naval Forces mm-hmm. yeah. during World War II. What everybody doesn't know, well, there's probably a lot of people out there that know this, I shouldn't say that, but when he was an ensign, like a brand new officer, he was in charge of the uh, the ship that he was on, I think it was like a destroyer or something. And he was in charge on a night watch and ran the ship aground. Right? And so they were deciding whether they were just going to kick him out of the Navy or not. Like, what are they going to do with this guy? Mm-hmm. 
And his CEO, his commanding officer at the time, said, hey, let's give this guy another chance. Yeah. You know, he's a pretty good dude. Let's let's mm-hmm. give him another chance. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate. I mean, they, they, they kept giving me chances. And when I finally figured it out, I was, I mean, I turned out and, and you know, well, I was proud of my service. It's proud of what I did. And there's not a guy in the Marine Corps that wouldn't have stood up for me at that point. See, so maybe it's good. a little bit of luck or maybe it's, these guys saw the potential in you mm-hmm. that maybe you didn't even see in yourself. Yeah. You know, maybe these guys were like, or maybe they were that guy before. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe without they, a doubt, maybe, I know my gun he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see? We, we see? became quite the friends and I heard quite the stories from him. Yeah. You know, um, but I mean, even to get by, I mean, that, that was, and that was the hardest thing for me because we became friends and then he got out and then not that long after that, I got out and I stayed in 29 Palms where I was stationed. Um, and then he ended up moving back to Ohio. Mm-hmm. And then like a year later, I found out that he had brain cancer. Yeah. And like, it was rough watching him. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the guy, a guy you looked up to, this massive, you know, and he wasn't a big guy, but he was just, I mean, he was that guy who'd smoke a, he could smoke a pack and a half of cigarettes and still run a perfect PFT in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. you know? And you're just like, how do you yeah. do and, and then drink all day long? Yeah. I mean, he was just like, I mean, it was just something, he's there's something of, weird in their brains, he's right? He's one of those freak of nature guys. Yeah. You know? Um, but then to, to see him and have a conversation with him where he really didn't know who he was or where he was going because yeah. of the amount of radiation that was getting pumped into his body and to see him just turn it into this frail guy, it was yeah. just like, man, it was, it was heartbreaking. But it was hard because there'd be nothing I could do. But, yeah. you know, he fought the good fight. I saw that too because for the last uh, basically two years of my chemo treatment, so I told you I was a pediatric patient, right? So when I actually got to the point where I was doing outpatient stuff, I would have to come to the pediatric clinic. Oh, man. And so you're there with all these kids, and, you know, some of them, some of them are. I mean, some of these kids are in a, in a bad way. They're terminal, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, they're pumped so full of steroids that, like, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this kid named Nick. Sorry, I'm, like, hitting the microphone. No, it's okay. If you're, I think if you raise it up just a little like, bit, it may get you a little more room. I, I got, you're I, trapped. I got some Italian in my blood, so I talk with my hands. And, <laughs> and this kid... He had, he had some sort of rare type of cancer, and I can't remember what it was for the life of me. But I remember the last time I saw him, he was on so many steroids that, obviously, like, steroids make you retain water and retain mm-hmm. fluid. And, like, his face had swollen up so much that it had, like, swollen over his eyes so he couldn't even see. Man. You know? But there's other kids, so... One of the biggest things that I learned when I was going through this is, you know, I'll go back to life hands you situations, things happen in life that are obviously out of your control. And I feel like as adults, we spend too much time trying to think, why am I in this situation? Why am I in this situation? Mm-hmm. I'm honest with it. Like, there's only, there's only one person that has the answer to that. And it's not you. And it's no. not me. No. That's God. And sometimes, you know? he's, and most of the time, he's not giving us the answer. Yeah, <laughs> he, and he's not going to give it to you anyway. Yeah. So, 
learned from the kids is that they don't waste their time on that. Yeah. You know, they're like, okay, so this was quite a while ago. This was back when PlayStation 2 was like brand new. This is how long ago this was, right? And that would have been 90s, right? PlayStation, so the original PlayStation was in the 90s. This was PlayStation 2, the, the second version had just come out. And so they had a PlayStation 2 in there. And, all, and most of the kids were just like, all right, you know what? This is something that I just have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have to come in here and get hooked up to a machine or get a shot. And then they usually keep you for like 30 minutes to an hour just to make sure you don't have a crazy reaction to it. Mm-hmm. So over that 30 minutes an hour, they just go in the room and play PlayStation. They're like, okay, I got to come here and do this. Now I get to play PlayStation. I'm good. You know, it was the mental part of it is how they, how they attacked it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this, there was this kid that I'm gonna tell the story, and this is gonna make me sound really, really mean. But it ended up working out, so just stay with me here. It's all good. So uh, there was this kid named Walker, you know, which is your last name, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And he had some sort of developmental disorder, and I can't remember, what, I can't remember what it was called, where his motor skills were at like ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Um, of a, I say a quote unquote normal person, the average person. Mm-hmm. Really nice kid. He had to, it took some time to really understand like what he was trying to say. And so he had, he had the same type of leukemia I did. And he would come in and we would always come in like the same time. We'd be there at the same time. And he was 17 and I was 20. And so we're sitting there playing PlayStation. I played NHL 2002. That was my game, right? Because I've been playing it. Me and my friend, we've been playing it. We've been playing all NHL, so I was actually really good at it. And, um, you know, one of the days, I want to say like maybe like a month into it, he was like, yeah, can I play with you? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so me being me, we're playing, and I'm like, I'm competitive. Like, I'm not letting him win. Right? And so I'm beating him like 30 to, 30 to 0. Right? And every day he would come in, and then it would go, the score would go from like, 30 to zero to like 15 to one. Then after three weeks of it, it was like five to two. Then it was like three to two. All of a sudden I'm like, okay, he's really good. And he couldn't drive. So his dad, Ed had to bring him in every day. Uh And Ed never said a word, never said a word to me while this was going on. He was just sitting back and just watch. Yeah. And then finally, after about six weeks, we are doing this every day. We finally, we had a game where we were tied and went to overtime. And he scores a game on overtime and goes ballistic. Absolutely nuts. Yeah. He is like standing up, screaming, pumping his fist, almost ripped his IV out. The nurse would come in and be like, Walker, calm down, calm down. He was so excited. And the funny thing is, is that after that happened, he had actually kind of messed up the tape on his IV, so the nurses had to bring him back in, back in their little office and fix him. And his dad comes over to me and he goes, I want you to know that for the last six weeks, I thought you were one of the biggest, you know, insert four-letter word here that I'd, ever, that I'd ever seen. And then he goes, you know, but seeing that reaction, that made my heart happy. Yeah. So he was like, yeah, thanks for that. And I was like, I was just playing hockey, like. <laughs> yeah. So he told me that after the third day of us playing hockey together, 
he had begged his dad to go buy him a PlayStation and go get that game. And he would go home after chemo and he'd play that game for like four or five hours. Really? Oh yeah, his Just dad. Just about it. Yeah, his dad, his dad said that he would have to force him to go to sleep at night because he'd be like, no, like you're done. You're done. Yeah. Like we're not playing it anymore today. And so, uh, and so like, that's, see, that's how we need to treat life. That's how I think, you know, because I learned such a big lesson there. This kid who had all of these reasons to just quit and be like, yeah, you know what? Like, this just isn't working out for me. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't what I'm doing. He was like, no, like I'm doing this. I'm going to win. Yeah. I think that, uh, sometimes we just get in our own head and say, yeah, we can't do it for whatever reason. And the hardest part is just got to let go and just say, Hey God, you got this. Like I'm work my tail off. Yeah. But you got it. And then it actually relieves a lot of the pressure and everything on the back end, on the front end and really allows you to accomplish your goals. Mm-hmm. You know, because so to fast forward. So I finished, I finished, chemo and everything. And then I had to jump through a ton of hoops to get medically clear because when you go from like the reserve component or national guard active duty, you have to go to maps, you have to do everything all over again. Yeah. And uh, when the recruiter sent my medical packet down to maps, they were like, don't even bother sending this dude down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know what to do. The recruiter's like, well, I don't really know what to do at this point. And so I've been in the army long enough, so I kind of knew how stuff was gonna work. And so I actually took my medical form, my 2807, my 2808, I took it to my Savannah oncologist and I had her sign off on it. Mm-hmm. And the people at MEPS took it. They were like, oh, that's fine. And I was like, so you really just didn't want to take responsibility for this. Pretty much. What, what was that? And this is in 2007. This was in the surge. No, I was going to say, that was yeah. the big surge, 2007. Yeah. All so, hell was breaking loose. Yeah. And so... If you had a pulse, like, yeah, we'll figure this out, man. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I went and uh, I've been a truck driver in the reserves, I actually changed to being an infantryman. Then I went to airborne school. And actually, you know, you want to talk about a God moment, right? I'll give you another God moment right here. So I was in basic training down at Fort Benning. And uh, this was in the 11th week. And even though... So to remind, even though I was a prior service guy, they'd tell you like, oh, we're gonna put you in the end of the basic training part so you don't have to go through basic training again. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, that's, that just sounds like a yeah. lie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They put me in at the end of the third week, so it's like red face, so I'll get hazed. And oh yeah. They treat the drill sergeant treat us just like privates, and I was like, okay. I didn't really like it at the time, but I really needed it. Mm-hmm. And uh <laughs> and so uh we're doing we're doing the punch drill and you know, like this was, this was four years after I decided I was going to go be armed. I say I decided, like, I shouldn't say it like that because it sounds like I'm almost willing myself to do it because that's not really how it works. No, man, but you were, like, you said it when you first started talking about this, like, you said, and I wish I could go back and listen to exactly how you said it, but you were like, man, I knew I was getting ready to start this chemotherapy. And I saw this picture of these guys 
you know, repelling off this rock face, you know, with a 70 pound rucksack, probably more, honestly. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a rucksack that it was like, it looked like the size of a truck. It was know? probably, yeah, it was a Molly 2, large. No, no, this was, this was an owl's pack. Oh, owl's I mean, pack. Jesus, those things are just, I mean, honestly, I ruck with an owl's pack, so I don't say anything. But this guy's coming off this thing, and you're just like, I'm going to be an army ranger. Like, God, did that just, that, that wasn't an arrogant statement. That was that was something you 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 said clearly. Hey, God put this vision in my heart that that's where I was going to go, and so there's no reason to to back away from that man. Like well, own it. Well, know that it was God that put it on you. Oh, God definitely did, and uh, they couldn't give me uh, the army call that they call it was it's a option forty contract, a contract to go to the Ranger Regiment. Because mm-hmm. your previous service or. No, yeah, they couldn't give me one because I was a prior service guy. That's what I was told. I think that's kind of shenanigans. But, you know, my recruiter lied to me. That's what right. I said. Really? <laughs> I'd have never known such a thing. And so uh, I was in basic training, and I'd actually got orders to go to 2nd Infantry Division up Fort Lewis. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't where I wanted to go, but I was like, okay, whatever. And so we're doing uh, the Combatives Level 1 certification, which uh, the end of it is called the Punch Drill. Mm-hmm. Where it's basically you have instructors, they have boxing gloves on, and they're trying to take your head off, mm-hmm. and you got to put them in what's called a clinch, which is basically you have to get close enough into them, wrap them up, and pin their arms to the side of their body. Mm-hmm. But you got to do that while they're trying to knock you in the face and knock you out. Yeah. Okay. And so we're getting warmed up, and we're getting ready, and then the door opens, and this guy comes up with tambourine at the time, like everybody knew he's a ranger. I could see the ranger tab. Yeah. And he was what I call an industrial-sized human. He was a physical monster. You know, like you were talking about, you know, your uh, your friend that was a company gunny. Yeah, yeah. That was a freaking nature. This guy was a freaking nature. Yeah. Sergeant First Class Sandbach. And uh, he comes in, he starts talking to the drill sergeants, and then my drill sergeant comes over and he says, Hey, Lufkin, this guy wants to talk to you. I was like, what? What? And so uh, I go over there and he brings me in this, he brings me in the side room, which is just he and I. He's like, hey, you know, I know you don't know me, but I heard about your story and I heard, you know, you want to go to Ranger Regiment. And I was like, are you, are you serious right now? Like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, I know what you went through. And he goes, but you sure you want to do this? And I was like, I don't want to do anything else more than this. He goes, well, if you do this, you're not getting any special treatment. And I was like, I don't want any special treatment. I just want a shot. He goes, all right, you're going to get your shot. And so the backstory to this is that, so I told you that my mom graduated from law school when I was a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. She was a practicing attorney at the time. This was 10 years later, 10 years after she graduated. And she, she had a client who she was talking to me about. And this guy just happened. He was an old ranger, had a ranger buddy that was still there. And literally, like, he came over just to talk to me, see whether I was legit or not. Yeah. And then see if I get a shot to go to ranger regiment. And it's like, that never, ever happens. No. You want to talk about like God working in your life? Yeah, no, that doesn't happen. Yeah, that never, ever, ever happens. And so uh, it was funny because the next, so we finished the punch drill, and then the next day, the unit administrator guy 
he calls me he calls me down he's like i don't know where you got your friends over at ranger regiment but here you go and he gave me my orders and everything and then i had orders i went to airborne school and i went to rip so 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 you went back to benning because so, you were for you at Fort Lewis at this point. No, I hadn't gone to Fort Lewis. I was still in basic training. Okay, so you were still at Benning then. I still I had orders to go to Fort Lewis. And yeah. I was still in basic training, and my orders got changed. This was like two weeks before graduation, uh-huh. and so then my orders got changed, and I went to Airborne School. Which, by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, you need to do it. I'm going to tell you if you want to find out about yourself. Really. Yeah, you want to put, let me tell you what, you want to put your faith in God, you jump out of an airplane. You may have to take me up, man. I've hey, never done it. Let's do I it. I always swore that if I ever did it, the only reason I would do it is because I could earn some wings to put on my chest when I was in the Marine Corps. And they don't give those to everybody in the Marine Corps, I can promise you. Oh. They don't give them to anybody in the Marine Corps for the most part. I know. And But Basically. there's this there's this weird thing in my brain that's that's been so, so I've, I've got this calendar of my life. It's my wife and my life in weeks. And I look at oh, it. Oh, that's cool, um, Yeah, because I remember you telling me about that. And so I, even this morning, I got up and I was like looking at it. And I'm like, I don't think I have enough dots on it. And so I had to update like three dots on uh, this year. Okay. But uh, it's something that's just kind of been in the back of my head. I may need to jump out of a plane with somebody. I don't yeah. know if I'll do a solo, but definitely. I, I reached a point that I want to do something solo, but I think it'd be worth doing it with, with well, somebody just to kind of experience it. If you think about it right... I mean, don't give me the statistics of how many people survive and don't survive. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't, I wasn't, I <laughs> you wasn't won't help that. convince me at all. No, I wasn't doing that. It's just like, if you think about it, you think about it, you talk about, you know, putting your faith in God. Yeah. You know, you talk about Christians. You know what? We give our lives to Jesus. Mm-hmm. We believe in him. We put faith in him. Yeah. Okay. I don't care what you say. I care what you do. Mm-hmm. Right? Because in my opinion, I'm going to say it's in my opinion, I think that our culture is now is that there's a whole lot of talkers and not enough doers. Yeah. And so that's one of those things like, you want to put your faith in God? Yeah. You put your faith in God real quick. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I got a lot of opinions in case you haven't figured that out. That's okay, bro. That's good. I like your opinions. I like, I like the way you like your thinking. So airborne school, yep. RIP. What's RIP stand for? I heard somebody say that on a podcast so, the other day. Yeah. It's Ranger Ranger, Ranger Indoctrination Program. That's that's actually it's not even it's just called that. It's not even called that anymore. What's it called though? It's called uh, the Ranger Assessment Selection Program now. Okay. So there's RASP one, which is for E five and below. Uh-huh. And then there's RASP two, which is for E six and above. Hmm. And so for us at the time it was RIP, which was an indoctrination program, which was E five and below part. And then rope was the six and above part. And so they say a ranger indoctrination program. Basically what it is, is they just make you do PT. Just boot camp, but 10 times worse. <laughs> it's, it's just, see, it's funny because in boot camp, they're just like, okay, you just got to do this. Like they don't give the option quit. Mm-hmm. You know, like in RIP, it was more mental games. Than it was, than it was physical stuff. It's like, I mean, you can make me try and do push-ups for an hour, yeah. but here's the thing: is that my muscles are only going to last for maybe like two or three minutes, and then I'm just in the rest positions the rest of the time. Yeah. You know, and so they would, 
like we'd be asleep at like zero two, and they would hit, they would pull a fire alarm, and they'd come over to the PA and they'd be like, "All right, Rangers, you have ten minutes to have your wall lockers and bunks outside in formation." You know, and like we're up on the third floor of the barracks, right? <laughs> and it's funny because you'll have dudes that be like, "We gotta hurry, we gotta hurry," and I'm like, "Like, come on, man! Like, you know what this is, right? This is." This is just a reason for them to mess with us. Yeah, that's all. Oh man, look, we did yeah. we did uh, rack races. Oh yeah, double rack, you know, because we're sleeping in bunks, and it'd be like, "All right, get up," yeah. and you're running them out the front door down, and and that was in boot camp, and yeah. I'm just like, "Whatever, man, just yep. shut my brain off, pick yep. it up, move." Yep, that's yeah, that's exactly it. I'm not even thing. thinking about they it. They used to do the same thing to us. They would do we'd be standing out there in formation. And that was the weird part. We'd just be standing out there in formation for like an hour, two hours. Mm-hmm. And they'd randomly come out and then they start making us do PT. And they'd be like, All right, we're gonna do PT until ten people quit. <laughs> and that's the funny part is that you'd be like, you'll have guys that they'll go up there and quit, and then you'll have other guys be like, All right man, I'm gonna take one for the team. And you're like, No, that's not what you're gonna do. Dude. Like don't really yeah oh yeah oh yeah that's and when you say quit it's like ringing the bell like hey i'm done like you're not going to get your tag yeah yeah you're not going to get your second chance either so rip isn't ranger school this is this this is a selection program to go to a ranger regiment and then oh okay so this yeah yeah so a lot of people a lot of people don't it's it's unless you unless you've been inside the community Mm -hmm. it's harder to it's hard to tell where the line is yeah so, Ranger Regiment is a unit inside the Army. Mm-hmm. And then Ranger School is a school that's run by the Army. And they're completely separate. Okay. My old, uh, my old Sergeant Major, Sergeant Major Merritt, who's actually, uh, he, uh, he's going to get inducted in the Ranger Hall of Fame this year. And great dude. Amazing dude. Yeah. And he goes, you know, we could run, we could run the best Ranger School ever. It's just we don't have resources to do it. And, you know, he would always say. But, uh, but... So that was to get uh, what I call your scroll, because the scroll is a unit patch. Mm-hmm. And so RIP gets you your scroll. And then once you finish RIP, you go to you go to one of the times, either first, second, third ranger battalion. All right, so what's the between, what's, all right, so I've heard of like 75th? Yes, that's exactly it. 75th Ranger Regiment. Okay, so 75th Ranger Regiment, and inside of that, then there's first, second, third battalion? Yep. Okay. Yep, so those are line battalions, and then, uh, it stood up the special troops battalion right before I got there, and now they have a military intelligence battalion and a couple other things. But uh, but yeah, three line battalions. Okay. So three line infantry battalions. Mm-hmm. You go there, and then you get hazed worse when you go up there because going to ranger school, you're out of passage. Mm-hmm. You know, and they would just treat you like terribly. I. I could tell you, I could tell you story. I could say stories that I probably can't even say on this podcast. That they used to do to us. Yeah, I don't know. Like one of the things they would, they would make us uh, what we call qualify. Qualify. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, I'm getting the koala in that. So. Well, so we had, so we'd be on the field at the range, and they'd start messing with us, with us privates, and they would make us grab onto a tree upside down, and we'd have to hang onto the tree. You know. And the last one, the last one to ha- the last one to fall off, would not get smoked as much. You still get, you still get smoked. 
So you shouldn't just, get smoked as much. It's because everybody was getting smoked while yeah. they while you were still yeah. hanging on a tree. Yeah, and it's just like you're fighting a losing battle because one, you're trying to hang on to this tree, and then two, all the blood's rushing to your head. So dudes are just like passing out. You know, that's why they call it qualifying because koalas, you know, they eat all those eucalyptus leaves, and there's alcohol in the eucalyptus leaves. That's why Australians call them draw bears because koalas will get so drunk in really? eucalyptus leaves that they'll fall out of a tree. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're qualified. There's your useless, your useless fact. I love that though, man. That's a good fact. <laughs> that's 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 a that's a fun thing. I know that we've been going at this now for two hours, man. And you, you've, your story is absolutely amazing. Um, just understanding and hearing what it was like for your mom yeah. and the resilience that she showed in her life, and just I can imagine like when you told that story there were two things that went through my mind. One, there was this, this, this heartbreak for your dad. Yeah. Um, I believe that there's two main sins that every man and every woman live out every day. And for a man, it's the sin that I don't have what it takes. Yeah. Because when Eve did what she did, man stepped back and went, well, God, it's your fault. You gave her to me. And we didn't step up and we didn't be, we worked at, Adam wasn't the leader, the the warrior, the man that he was called to be for his wife at that moment. And Eve, on the other side, uh, the side of that, lives in this world of, I'm not going to be taken care of by the man who's supposed to be taking care of me. Yeah. Not saying, don't please people don't read into those, like like a woman can't take care of herself. It's not true. But without a doubt, there's this thing. And and your mom showed a resilience that she said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I can't take care of myself. Yeah. Um, but then I felt bad for your dad because your dad probably lived with that lie for the rest of his life going, man, I just didn't step up when I needed to. But I believe that the resilience that your mom showed comes out in your life and, and really comes out in the story that you told about battling leukemia. Yeah. And then I can imagine how that all played into you becoming a ranger. Um, and... I'm excited to learn more about what that life was like for you and how that resilience has continued to play into your life, um, both from your combat deployments, um, coming back from those things, what life was like here after those things, and then, then where you're at now, you know, raising a family, being the president of the Student Veterans Association and all that, just how that resilience has carried you through that. But if you wouldn't have had cancer, how that what, what, what would that have looked like? Oh, I wouldn't have been able to do any of that. And so it's just, it's this beautiful thing. And so I just, I want to tell you, thank you for the time that you spent today and for sharing what you did. And hey, for everybody who's listening to this, we're going to get the second half of this story. <laughs> um, and we'll probably hopefully get it all put together on one long podcast because I just don't think it can be a two-parter without it. Um, so with that, man, we're going to call it for today, bro. I appreciate it, bro. All right, man. Thanks, buddy. Hey guys, if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Connect with me on Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want to connect and support Drew and the Auburn Student Veterans Association, they can be found on Instagram at WarDamnVeterans. Remember, you too can be a trailblazer in your own way. Until next time, keep blazing your trail.